Under a grey and menacing sky, fans gathered at Paris's Pierre Lachaise Cemetery on Saturday to pay tribute to the 1960s rock singer Jim Morrison on the 50th anniversary of his sudden death, writes The Guardian. It's understood Morrison went to the cinema in Paris, returned to his flat after a restaurant dinner to listen to some music and died of a heart attack in the bath. He was just 27. And at Pierre Lachey, uh, Morrison lies in final rest with other international luminaries such as Oscar Wilde, Edith Piaf and Moliere. And someone who has been there is Robin Gallagher, who is with us now. Kia ora, Robin. Hi there. Great to have you on. Tell us about the cemetery. It's the biggest cemetery in Paris, I understand. Yeah, it's it's huge. It's um it's historic. It's it's a really beautiful place. Um, lots of trees, lots of um, really beautiful gravestones and crypts, and it's just really a, a great place to to have a wander around. And there, in the middle of it, is Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> and and Robin, did you make a beeline for Jim Morrison's grave? I kind of did. I um, that was that was why I was going there, and um, I had a mat, and I was just basically going straight there, and yeah, that that was my mission. Mm. Um, there are there are other what 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 are some of the other graves and, and other graves um, of note, Robin? Yeah, the one I was really interested in was Oscar Wilde. Um, that's another one that has a bit of a cult following. Mm. Um, at the time. Um, there was a sort of trend for people to kiss it, put lipstick kisses on, which is supposed to bring good luck. And that actually caused a bit of a damage to his um, gravestone because it's this beautiful, elaborately carved Art Deco limestone. Wow. And it was starting to eat away at the, the stone. So um, a few years ago, I think they did quite an extensive restoration and covered it in glass. But when I went there, it was just all lipstick everywhere. <laughs> and any diehard Jim Morrison fans while you were there, Robin? No, when I was there, I was I was kind of expecting to find someone like wailing on the ground, but it was just like <laughs> quite well-behaved tourists. <laughs> well, Jim, uh, oh, sorry, Jock, uh, I can imagine that you would be a Doors fan. Absolutely yeah. not. How dare you? Wash your mouth. What? Um, the I've Doors? I've never liked The Doors. I've never understood what Jim Morrison's on about. <laughs> and while I always respect the dead... Um, there's no there's no way you'd get me going there. It's Oscar the doors, Wilde. Jock. It's the doors. Never, you know who who were, who were they again? Who, were they? Were they an Australian group or something? Caroline, I I haven't been to um, Morrison's grave, but I have done a bit of um, grave. I'm not worshipping, but spotting, spotting in my time. Yeah. Not, not grave robbing. No. No, 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 I've tried to steer clear. <laughs> um, but, you know, Marks in London, yeah. um, Eva Perron in Argentina. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's another one. I, th- I think a bit like Robin, you know, you get the map which directs you to um, Evita's um, crypt. Uh, it, it is very odd watching the sort of tourism around these things, the people who bring the candles, the flowers. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't see a lot of mm. kissing. It sounds a bit more like the mm. Blarney Stone yeah. to me. Hey, just finally, uh, Robin, I mean, is there, uh, uh, is there any, was there any plan to go back? And I mean, it sounds quite an extraordinary precinct itself anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a really nice part of the city, and yeah. I definitely recommend it if you're you know wanting to do something in Paris that's a bit different from the usual, um, you know, Arc de Triomphe, Eiffel Tower kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, it's a and as well as 
the the notable grave that's just a really nice place to be, spend a few hours wandering around. Lovely to have you on the program, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, now to the feedback. And it's been about houses. My goodness me. Uh, Where are these fabled places, Jock? I have the ability to... (laughs) (laughs) He's reading from the screen. I'm reading. I'm not making it up. I have the ability to travel but can't find a house under 800K. I've been looking for six months. My friend bought last year at 650K and his house went up 90,000 in two months. This is one of those towns on the outskirts of Auckland. He no longer works in Auckland. Peter, Jock is deluded. Our daughter bought a basic simple house in Wellington after a year of looking and missing out close to a million. I know Rolleston, we like it, but work is in Wellington. Someone says, though, there's plenty of housing under one million in Massey, West Auckland. I don't know that there's no, plenty. No, not that I, I know, not that I, I, I see. I think there might be some, but I think it's also, we've got to be really careful with some of these statistics because people wrap in apartments exactly, and, yes, and units and, and various other things, and it's not housing that they're talking about. And while, you know, I've lived in an apartment myself, I'm not saying that apartment living is an, a, a something, you know, that it's an option for families, the way a lot of apartments have been, have been, not necessarily are at right. the moment, but have been built in New Zealand. Oh, they have not news been flash, built. Newsflash. Oh, you there's found a, one? There's you found a one? for sale, Jock. Um, there's, a, there's a nice brand new simple three-bedroom apartment in Rimiwera for five million. Well, I think they're going to build we... some round the corner from me for ten million. Well, you could handle that with a million dollar mortgage, surely. What are they complaining about? All right. Uh, tell you, lo- if, so- if someone's got eight hundred thousand, they want to move to Timaru. Give me a call. Well, actually, um, Timaru had a big billboard in the CBD just yes. last week saying, "Come to Timaru." And did it, do... did it say why? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, it didn't. All right, 20 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. Uh, and, by the way, loving your feedback. Thank you for uh, texting and emailing him. The price of a one-kilogram block of cheese is now out of reach for some families. This week, one kg's of mainland Tasty cost sixteen twenty at Countdown kg and was promoted as, as a special, down from the usual price of eighteen twenty a block. There are the cheap in-house brands. Countdown's in-house signature range tasty was seventeen fifty a kilo, a dollar thirty more than mainland. Now, since most cheese blocks were made by dairy company Fonterra, some Kiwis would like to know why a New Zealand-made dairy product was so expensive. With us is Consumer NZ John Duffy. John Kia ora. Kia ora. A, a one-kilogram block of cheese nudging toward the twenty-dollar range is. Not cheap, is it? It certainly isn't cheap, especially for a staple like this that you know will be part of the um, part of the diet for for lots of Kiwi families. It's pretty expensive. Now these signs, you know, promising discount deals. I mean, they're quite a regular feature in supermarket aisles. Oh, absolutely! Supermarkets rely extremely heavily on discounting as part of their marketing strategies. But consumers need to be really wary, and it's something that we've had uh, a bugbear with for many years. Um, they need to be really wary to make sure they're actually getting a bargain. So just how much of a special are these specials? Well, sometimes they're not specials at all. I mean, we get complaints from consumers who are, who are in the supermarket, and you know they'll pick up a, 
they'll have a look at an item on the shelf and, and flip the, the special pricing over to reveal that, you know, the normal price underneath is exactly the same as the special price. You know, that's, that's an extreme example of where the supermarkets are misleading people. But um, there's also the length of time that the products are on special. You know, if, if something, a block of cheese is on special at a, at a certain price for upwards of eight weeks, um, you have to ask yourself at what point does that special price actually become its regular selling price and at what point does it become misleading for the supermarket to be saying it's you know, reduced by 10% or something like that. Right, especially if it's many weeks. I mean, is there not a danger of uh, overusing specials as a tactic to bring in customers? Oh, I think we're well past that point. Right. <laughs> I think supermarkets absolutely flog this type of marketing um, to the point where... You know, I think consumers are quite jaded and cynical. We we, we tend to call it the Briscoes effect here uh, internally. Where you know, it's a kind of running joke that, that there'll be a sale on at Briscoes. It's mm. it's just a standard part of, of of marketing these days. Now, the global price for cheese that that's increased, John, fifteen percent, one five percent over the past year. I guess not much can be done about that. Well, I think with with dairy products, you know, New Zealanders feel like we're we're a significant dairy producer, and um, you know, prices at home should be cheaper than prices abroad. But the reality is, reality is, we're part of a global economy. Uh, we take advantage of of a whole lot of benefits of free trade, but one of the downsides for New Zealand consumers is they are competing. Uh, with international consumers, and so the the price is, is often set offshore and is beyond the control of, of retailers here in New Zealand. Right. Yeah. I mean, one might think there could be an argument that says the customer in the country of origin should get better prices? Yeah, the, the, you can make those arguments, but often when we sign up to fair trade agreements, um, we're specifically prohibited from um, favouring um, domestic customers. Um, so that we, you know, the, the reverse doesn't happen for our products, um, over, uh, so for products we import. Right. Mm. Very interesting. Consumer ends is John Duffy. John, thank you. All right, Caroline, what do you make of this? It's certainly not cheap to buy uh, a kilogram of block of cheese. No, it's not. But, I mean, picking up on John's point about, mm. you know, the, the, that's free the cost thing. of free trade. Yeah. I mean, I, and I know I have been in parts of the world at times when I have hankered for a bit of New Zealand cheese and, by God, it's been expensive. Yeah. yeah. What do you but, think? you know, tasty. Yes. What do you think, Jock? But there have been stories from time to time, haven't there, about New Zealand products being cheaper overseas than, than we are able to buy them here. How does that work? Well, I'm not quite sure, but I guess the question is uh, that uh, should we be able to get a cheaper price on cheese when we live in New Zealand? I think we should. Yeah. Carolyn? I, I, I think some of the um, comparisons that are sometimes made, is, say, with Australian supermarkets, which have much greater buying power, yeah. and also, of course, supermarkets do the loss leaders. So you might see that block of cheese mm. for cheaper than you can get it down the road, but that doesn't mean it's always cheaper. But are, but, the, are, the, are the smaller cheesemakers, say, smaller than Fonterra, who can make cheese cheaper in New Zealand? Well, I don't know that, actually. I shouldn't that think so. I mean, out. usually economy of scale, isn't mm. there? But they might make nicer cheese. Yeah, exactly. Ah, yeah. Yeah.
Uh, it's 15 to 5. You're on the panel, RNZ National. Lovely to have your company uh, this afternoon. Uh, someone says, what to do in Timaru? Well, why does everything need to happen in Auckland? Very true. Timaru is a fine city, and if jobs were there, I would gladly go to Timaru. It is a beautiful city, isn't it, Jock? It certainly is. Mm. And, um, yeah, it certainly is. Can I tell you about our new art gallery? No, you can't, <laughs> because you know why? Because people want to know more about your love life. I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> they want to know more about you and your... Um, oh. But remember, uh, people, Shetland, Shetland people are Islander. getting ready for dinner. <laughs> well, look, uh, here's, here's, here's me thinking this is a family show. Yep. <laughs> well, d- d- I'm not saying you have to ha- be all I, crazy I think, about I think it. I know what I'm you just, mean. I just, yeah. they, want, they want to know more about you and your... Who, what's your, what's your, um, your long-distance partner again? My fiance. Yeah. Oh, so you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. You're engaged to her. Yeah, we're engaged. Yeah, we're, oh. we're getting married. And, and are um, you really going to wear a kilt up to Arthur's yes, seat? Yes, Arthur's seat, yes, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a preordained uh, condition. Uh, it's like a kind of a, a, a Celtic prenup, if you like. All right. And um, uh, Wonderful. I've not been up Arthur's seat. I've seen it from a distance. Oh, you better get some hill climbing practice. Have in. you been well, there, Karen? I have indeed. You have. you have. Oh, good on you. Absolutely. Well, Beautiful look, views Look, partly in, partly in preparation for this, I have... Uh, I've lost uh, 15 kilos in weight oh, just over the last uh, 12 months or so, and uh, I've got a I've got a a, a target. Got I'm a wee way off it yet, but I will get there. Right. And um, uh, there's people, the good folk of Edinburgh, um, will be surprised if that's the right word, maybe shocked, um, when they see me kilted. And they're that, waiting that for you. Happen. Good on you, Doc. Uh, there are concerns what councillors are paid is not enough to attract a range of candidates, especially in smaller districts. This uh, is an item from the Whanganui Chronicle. The latest ratepayers report compiled by the Taxpayers Union reveals the annual pay packets of elected officials with a significant variance in what councillors across the region are paid. So on average, a Whanganui councillor is paid $40,000 and the mayoral pay packet around 138000 There are concerns the pay of councillors isn't necessarily representative of the work they do. So Whanganui Mayor Hamish McDool said in the piece, the workload as a councillor is now so large, some councillors are working 40-hour weeks just on council business. So do we need to pay more to attract the right talent? To discuss is Josh Chandalul Mackay, Whanganui District Council's youngest councillor at 26. Josh, kia ora. Good afternoon, Wallace. Um, thanks for inviting me on the show. Good to be here. Pleasure to have you on. Tell us about the council work. And what did, what did you do? Yeah, so, um, I mean, in Whanganui, we're on uh, sort of uh, full, full-time minimum wage, so it's a little more sustainable. But I guess the, um, the, issue, the issue that I've got is around the flexibility required to be an elected member. I mean, you know, you'll have some periods in January in particular where there's very little work on. Um, but then you have uh, the period that all councils have just gone through, um, being the long-term plan and that whole process, where the amount of time spent is incredibly um, arduous and, and mm. a lot of... Um, pre-reading required, a lot of time spent in workshops and so on. And for me, the the primary issue is the level of flexibility required to be an elected member, and that actually makes having part-time employment Quite uh, tricky. pretty difficult to yes. sustain. No, I can imagine, particularly with yeah, yeah. the, uh, as people have said, the uh, increasing complexity of council issues in the last even five years. But, Caroline, let's jump to yeah, you first. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the assumption, isn't it, Josh, that a certain type of person, usually male, 
who has his own business or has the sort of seniority in his workplace that he can have that flexibility. That that's our traditional notion of of the local councillor. And when totally. someone you know who who's younger, who doesn't have that sort of employment opportunity, mm-hmm. comes in, you know, you suffer as a consequence. That- that's right, and it really cuts to, you know, what sort of democratic representation do we want? Do we want councils that are filled with um, with business owners and retirees who are often incredibly qualified but represent a certain segment of the population? Or do we want a more well-rounded um, form of democratic representation where all demographics and um, socioeconomic experiences can be represented? Josh? Jock, sorry, sorry. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And, uh, I mean, speaking as, as a failed candidate uh, in two previous um, local uh, body elections here in Timaru, um, it is tricky, and you're quite right, that the, the traditional councillor has been that older, sort of retired or semi-retired. But one of the dangers I think we have is that is trying to make the, the elected councillor like a full-time job, uh, because I can see a time uh, where people might be appointed or might be appointed by the government to be on a council rather than be elected uh, because there will be no people available who've got the time to fill those seats and uh, that would be a dreadful day if that ever happened because then the then then the, the national government the state would then start moving in and encroaching uh, into the areas of local politics which would be dreadful but how do you, how do you fairly compensate those people who choose to serve their community on a council? It's a, it's a, a constant question. It's one that will be difficult to answer. Yes. But anyway, good luck to young people who are giving it a go. Absolutely. I'm just trying to think. I mean, I, I, I mean, this has been up before on the panel, Josh. I think it was Thomas Pryor on the programme last year who mm. said that to attract a better calibre of councillor and in no way suggesting that uh, uh, the likes of yourself are a lesser calibre, but it needs to be more attractive. It needs to be more attractive to treat it as less of a less of a hobby. I mean, you've, you, yeah. you've intimated this sort of time. Some of these council issues are really prickly. Well, they're really big, and I think yeah. it is a question of... You you know, taking Jock's point, what is it that the councillors are deciding as opposed to council officials? Yes. And, right. you know, where's the line there? Because it does seem to me, you know, with an issue like water, which is, has been so you problematic, yeah. you know, should that actually be left to local authorities in the way it has? Or should that be looked after nationally so that the truly local issues... Uh, what's in front of the councillors, which might then oh, mean people aren't spending 40 hours Josh? a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, the, the, the water issue is a, it's an incredibly co- uh, uh, difficult one and it sort of cuts to the, the, the broader issue for councils around how they're funded and, you know, what sort of incentives are there in the funding streams, you know, primarily through rates that actually encourage elected members to to invest in their water infrastructure. Um, but I do agree that that, you know, there are other... Spaces that that councils should um, and could move into around community well-being and so on, um, but the difficulty is that we're not funded for that. Um, you know, we've, we've got this incredibly complex rating system um, that that um, sort of discourages that that sort of work and. Um, yeah, so so it can be difficult to get okay. to get some councillors to actually focus on that. Kiara, Josh, lovely to have you in the program, and all the very very best with your work. Thank you very much.
That is Josh Hunterlaw Mackay, Whanganui District Council's youngest councillor. You're a bit of a hit this afternoon, Jock. Someone says, forget Jock Anderson's love life. I want to know the secret to losing 15 kgs. <laughs> Stop no. eating. Don't buy cheese. Cheese, I was going to say. No cheese. And can you do it in under 30 seconds? What was your secret to losing 15 kilograms? Uh, well, the first thing of all is you have to get your mindset right. You have to decide in your head that that's what you're going to do. Uh, you don't use the word diet. Diet is a four-letter word. I don't okay, use no that diet. word. Uh, you do a bit of exercise. Exercise. I have, a, I have a stationary bicycle in the garage. Yep. And some days I actually go on that for half an hour. Uh, do a wee bit of walking. But also you just change your eating patterns. Eat, change, eat less. Simple. You're a legend. Look at you, going forth into the 21st century as a new person. Thank you, thank you. Half the man he Half used the to man be. Half the man on Arthur's seat, no less. Yeah, there's a, so- right. hey, there's a song there somewhere. <laughs> but it's not by the doors, right, Jock? No, it uh, might, be by the old, might be one of, by one of Prince Charles' favourites, Old Blind Dogs. Yes, I'm sorry we couldn't get to that, unfortunately. Anyway, finally, Southland's bale wrap waste problem may soon have a problem. Solution, solution rather. Bale wrap is a huge problem on farms. For environmental reasons, it can't be buried or burned and it must be stored, so a new project aims to recycle it. The plan is to import a $1.2 million machine from China that would turn the wrap into pallets, which could then be turned into useful plastic. Southland Dairy Farming Company, Fortuna Group, has thrown the support behind the project to discuss as Fortuna Group Chief Executive Matthew Richards. Kia ora, Matthew. Yeah, good afternoon. How are you? I'm really well, Matthew. We got you on the programme because we talked about waste the other day on this programme and a couple of farmers texted and said, forget about this other waste, bowel wrap for us is a massive problem. Yeah, absolutely, and it has been for a few years. So um, we met with Southern Disability Enterprises a couple of weeks ago and heard about the great project that they had, but they just were exhausted to all the avenues of getting funding. So we thought, hey, I'm pretty keen to help. So if I am, maybe other farmers are as well. So we thought, hey, let's go and raise 200000 and get this thing done. So why is it an issue? It just can't be, it can't be recycled. Yeah, just it was going to China and they just didn't want it in the, in the form it was That's at. Right. So, mm. um, you know, just, just our mess really. So... A, a way around that was to, to put it in pallet form and then it becomes quite a valuable commodity that they want to buy. So that's the only way we can get rid of it. So the good people at Southern Disability Enterprises have researched some ways to, to do that. So they, they can and, and so, Matthew, this will employ some disabled people in the South as well? Yeah, it's absolutely. And that, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. So not only does it does it sort an issue for, for farmers in Southland, but it also keeps people in work. So I think they nearly have 100 um, disability people working there. And, and they do a fantastic job. They really do. They do a lot of recycling for, for I think, in Vicargo and... and um, some Otago towns as well, so this just helps add to what they do and keeps them busy. Jock, where would the um, the heavy duty industrial plastics be made? I think they're all made overseas, so they're all okay. brought in from overseas, and then it becomes our problem. So unfortunately, there's no other way to to install grass that doesn't involve plastic currently. So I guess that we've got to find or, or work with 
the solutions so we can actually recycle it, and it could come back to us as barter plastic, which would. So, be d- does anyone have any idea as to h- how much um, bale wrap waste it would take, for argument's sake, to make one chain of pipe? Mm. Yeah, I, I'm sure someone will, but unfortunately, <laughs> not your man for that. <laughs> yeah, what, I, what I'm what I'm driving at is is it actually is it actually a practical solution? Absolutely. So pellets uh, can then be made. Uh, so it goes into a pellet. Yeah. And then it's sold, and then it can be tra- um, transformed into all numerous amounts of plastic. But but um, water pipes, one thing, um, yeah, sure. and they'll use the whole lot. So that, that's the beauty of this whole project. So Someone, be fully recycled. Look, this is a really great idea, uh, Matthew. That's why we got got you on because this sounds like an actual quite a solution. Just a quick question: Why do bales need to be wrapped? Someone says to install the grass. So yeah, great question. So we. You know, when we're in surpluses, when we're growing too much grass for the cows, we um, we we um, harvest it and and store it for when we we run out of grass when the grass grows slower. Um, and this, you know, if you get a dry summer or autumn or winter, so that's why we make it. Goodness, another question here: Don't you put them in barns? Yeah. Some do, yeah. Some yep. put them in barns, but you still got to feed them, right? So they still got to bring feed to them. So that's where silage or bailage is a good feed for them while they're in the barns. Mm. Hey, well done, Matthew, and all the very best for the venture. Hey, thanks for having us on. That is Fortuna Group Chief Executive Matthew Richards. So that is the massive problem of bail route. We actually I had... thought it was a lovely virtuous circle, but I did think, you know, nowadays you see all these houses wrapped in plastic when they're painting yes, and so decorating. That's a whole other Could now, that go through Final notes, Kia I think Jock needs to break on through to the other side of the housing market. <laughs> <laughs> Jock, <laughs> you're right there, Carolyn. Carolyn Daly, Jock Anderson, thanks for being with us. I'm you're back right. tomorrow. It's a pleasure. Thank you.